Hey folks, welcome to a special crossover episode of The Projection Booth and The Cold Shack Tapes. Yes, adding one more log to the fire of Carl Kolchak. We are talking about Kolchak the Night Stalker, a brand new book by Professor Kendall R. Phillips. It is available now as part of Wayne State University's TV Milestone series. Check out the series. They've been doing a lot of great work. I have to recommend a lot of the books that they've done, especially the Twin Peaks one. But this book about Kolchak, fantastic. As Professor Phillips says, it's a really good starter point for why people like Kolchak. So if you haven't experienced Kolchak, if you're listening to the Kolchak tapes, I know you have. If you're listening to the projection booth, maybe you haven't. But, you know, it was enough that Chris and I put together a whole long series talking all about the Night Stalker. So enjoy that and enjoy this book and enjoy this interview. Can you tell me a little bit about you, how you got into academia? I'm not even sure I remember anymore. I've been uh, I've been a professor for an awful long time. I, I'm a professor of communication and rhetorical studies uh, at Syracuse University. I've been uh, on the faculty here for 23 years previously taught at the University of Central Missouri for a few years. So it's it's been a little while. I am first-generation college, so this is kind of a new thing for my family. I grew up in Texas. Studying communication and culture was just a fascinating way of, of trying to understand how people sort of make sense of the world. And, and it's, been, uh, it's been an interesting ride, and somehow it took me down lots of dark alleyways to meet lots of monsters. So... Well, yeah, I see the picture of Frankenstein behind you. I mean, big monster guy, it looks like. Yeah. So, you know, I've been studying horror for probably all those 23 years and a bit more, uh, mainly in horror films, but increasingly, as with the the Kolchak Project, interested in horror narratives in other media. So looking at television, I'm actually currently looking at a project about horror on the radio. Uh, so it, it is interesting to look at the pervasiveness of these stories we tell to scare ourselves. Now, was the Kolchak book, was that your first published book? No, actually, it's it's my 11th. If I write a good one, I'll stop. About five or six of those, I probably should know the number, are related to horror. So a few years back, uh, I wrote a book called Projected Fears, Horror Films in American Culture uh, that looked at the broad history of horror from 1931 until at the time, the present, which was around 2000, I've written a book called A Place of Darkness that looks at uh, horror in very early cinema. So uh, 1896 to 1931, so the kind of the front end of that. Uh, and just recently had a book called A Cinema of Hopelessness uh, that looks at horror and other genres in the current era, sort of the 21st century, and asking why we're so angry and depressed. So, <laughs> Do you know why we're so angry and depressed? No, but I wrote a book about it, so I, you know, I, I guess, I guess maybe there was an answer in that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 the nutshell of the book is, you know, that we we are at a point in, I think, Western culture, at least, certainly American culture, where there's a kind of fantasy that the system is not working, you know, and that it has failed us. And we've seen that in, you know, the, on the right, we certainly saw that with the the the, the January sixth uh, riots and, gen, and kind of insurrection. Um, the Tea Party, I would say a lot of the Trump presidency was a around, you know, the system doesn't work. It's a swamp. It has to be drained. It has to be torn apart. But the same from the left, right? You certainly saw Occupy Wall Street. And so there's this kind of circulation of narratives of why can't we just burn the whole thing down? Let's quit, right? And so for me in horror, Cabin in the Woods was a great example of that. Uh, who people have seen that film know it's all about this evil system. And in the end, the people say, you know what? Screw it. If this is the way the world works, let it burn. 
Um, same with The Purge, which I think is a fascinating series of films all about this kind of system that is so evil and we just want out of it, but we can't seem to get out. So that's my nutshell answer to that question. So I'm already fascinated by the radio project that you're starting to work on because radio was such a great place for horror stories. And just, I remember having the bejesus scared out of me listening to horror radio on, I think it was AM 560 when I was a kid. And it's just like, wow, having its roots there going into television. I mean, television, you point out a lot of great things in the Kolchak book, the whole idea of Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and just taking horror home and making it more of a domestic thing than an outer space thing. Certainly about the radio side of it, what, what I'm really fascinated by right now um, were, you know, horror enters radio really through film. Like in around 1931, after the popularity of Dracula and Frankenstein, you start getting the advent of these um, anthology series, the Witcher, the Witch's Cauldron. Um, you know, I'm blanking on other names because I was thinking about Kolchak today. Uh, but you get a lot of these sort of anthology horror uh, that are all like separate little individual stories, a little like Twilight Zone uh, or Outer Limits. And in fact, that that format would be the way that 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 horror would enter television because several of those shows that were very popular radio shows in the 1930s would reformat and become television, like you know the you know the General Motors theater sort of thing, right? So they would have these little, um, you know, vignettes, uh, again, like Twilight Zone or Outer Limits. What I'm interested in radio is that, that in the late sort of mid thirties, around 36, 37, there's a kind of backlash against horror films. The production code was really trying to eliminate horror. They were t- telling all the major studios, like, quit it, shift to science fiction, shift to something else, get away from ghosts and demons and curses and, and things like that. And the same was happening with radio. So some of the very first really serious efforts to censor radio in, in the, the mid-30s and actually set up the FCC as a full-on censorship board, not just a licensing board, um, were driven by people who were worried about horror. Um, there's a, a senator from Iowa named Clyde Herring, who was one of the champions of this, who wrote an entire op-ed about Boris Karloff reading an Edgar Allan Poe poem uh, on a very popular kind of variety radio show and saying that this was inappropriate. It was terrifying children. It was bringing evil things into the homes. And of course, the same was true with television. You know, I know so much about more of the comic book industry and how that was censored. I never thought about the radio industry. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating moment. And actually, so this is completely off topic, but hey, we're chatting. The, one of the interesting things about the history of radio censorship was the the big moment when it probably would have happened if it was going to happen in terms of a really full-throated federal censorship system. The FCC does have regulations, but it's not a full-blown censorship structure. was after War of the Worlds. So you know, as everybody knows, H- uh, uh, Orson Welles produces the H.G. Wells. It's framed as here's Mercury Theater players kind of giving you this thing. But if you just tuned in late, which a lot of people did, it sounds like a real radio program and they're giving you real news reports in between a jazz show and they're aliens in Hackensack or wherever it was in New Jersey. Uh, and people freaked out and, and, and there's a big kind of public moment. And so a lot of the folks who were worried about horror, and they were also worried about sexuality and Mae West and humor, but they were worried about horror. So here you have War of the Worlds is kind of like, okay, that's the example they wanted to use that to justify censorship, but folks on the other side said, wait a minute, what War of the Worlds proves is how powerful radio is and that radio 
in the wrong hands, radio could be used to incite riots or incite, uh, you know, panic or, or get people to, you know, run for their homes and shoot at water towers, which is exactly what it did. Or again, we would see later in the 30s, Nazi Germany using radio for exactly the purposes. So a lot of people said that's exactly why the government should not have control of the airways because the government should not have uh, control of this really powerful weapon. So it's a fascinating moment of this anxiety and concern, and that would bleed out, you know, and you'd see the echo of that into the 1950s with the concern about young people and the, the, the broad Senate hearings about juvenile delinquency, which is where the, the comic book uh, is, issue comes up. A uh, psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham uh, starts testifying. He writes a book called The Seduction of Innocence, uh, where he says, you know, comic books are destroying morals and creating homosexuality and, and teaching people to be criminals and all kinds of quote-unquote horrible things. And that's what led to the comics code, the elimination of horror comics, you know, huge, huge impact. But it happened, even then, it happened at the industrial level because it was the comic book creators agreeing to this kind of internal fear. But all of that, as you, go, as you say, it goes back to this overarching concern of that kind of scary media, right? Those feelings of fear and that kind of superstition or those dangerous things getting into the home. Right. If it was in the theater, that was that was a problem. But if it got into the home through radio, through pulp novels, through comic books, later through television, now that was too much. That's where people wanted to draw the line and say, you can't send that stuff into our homes because it can get to us. And more importantly, it can get to our children. So where were we in the early 1970s to allow something like the Night Stalker to happen? I think it's a fascinating period. And it really is... This ongoing, it's a funny, the ongoing kind of sibling tension between motion pictures and television, right? So, you know, when television first comes out, motion pictures are scared because people say, hey, wait a minute, I don't have to pay, you know, 35 cents to go. I can sit at home and watch it for free. Why would I go out? So that starts to push Hollywood to get rid of the production code and bring in a lot of technological innovations like 3D and surround sound and stereoscope and all that sort of technological, but really to start pushing the boundaries and say, we can show you things that, that the government's not going to let they put on television. The flip side, by the time you get to the 70s, is uh, particularly in relation to horror, that period from about 1968 to 1982 is what some of us call the second golden age of horror. For me, it really starts with George Romero's Night of the Living Dead as the kind of indie, ugly, dirty film at the exploitation cinema, and then Rosemary's Baby, the respectable film. But both of those were really pushing the boundaries of what people had thought of as horror. Like they were really kind of going beyond what expectations were. You'd also had the production code was gone by 68. The rating system was a lot looser. And so you look at that period from 68 until, you know, mid late seventies, let's say 1982, you get all of your iconic films, right? Not only the, the franchises like Halloween and Friday the 13th, but the kind of gritty. Like Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, et cetera, et cetera. Right. These films that are really like pushing the edges of what, you know, can be considered acceptable in society. So there you get network television had been dabbling in horror, right? You certainly had a lot of comedy horror. So like Bewitched and The Munsters and The Addams Family. And you had little anthology, you know, kind of morality tales from Rod Serling. Daytime television, of course, had Dark Shadows, which was a really, you know, uh, progressive, innovative show. But none of those were really like the horror films of the 1970s. None of them were like bringing the horror home. The horror film I remember being the first thing that really hit me was Halloween. So I saw that in 1978. 
And what terrified me was not just the maniac with the mask and the knife. Okay, that was scary. What terrified me was it was set in the suburbs, right? It was a neighborhood not that, you know, my neighborhood was not that affluent, but, you know, it's still uh, when, uh, you know, Lori is running from J- Michael and she's banging on the neighbor's doors and they look out and they close the shutters and turn off the lights, I thought, oh my God, that would be me. And that felt like the horror was here. It wasn't in Transylvania. It wasn't in outer space. It wasn't in the, you know, 18th century. It was in the U.S. suburb where I lived. It was following my school bus. And that was like, ah, right. So what I think Kolchak did, one of the reasons I think that that original 1972 television movie and then the second movie in the series really cemented itself into pop culture was Kolchak was able, and that was the way Dan Curtis, who had done uh, Dark Shadows, was able to take scary monsters that would have been in sort of black and white B-movies over there and bring them here. And that was terrifying. And again, as, as some folks probably know, many of your listeners will know, uh, that first uh, you know January 1972 screening uh, or airing of the Night Stalker movie was the most watched television movie in history for many years, even after that. It eventually got eclipsed, but it was a, an event. People were calling people and saying, oh my God, are you watching this show? It's so, and I think one of the things that really made it back to your point was horror wasn't out there or over there or back then. Horror was in an alleyway in Las Vegas with an autopsy with police, like in the world we live in. And that, that was quite terrifying. I'm glad too that you brought up the whole idea of the importance of the investigative reporter as well. And especially in the early seventies, I'm trying to remember this was before Nixon put in his resignation, but this has got to be right around the time of Watergate. So having this hero reporter, so timely. Yeah. Well, it's, what's interesting is, and I won't remember the exact timing, so forgive me. Uh, um, the, for folks, who, you know, when you write a book, you write it, you finish it, you send it off, it goes into mysterious things and then eventually comes back. And, and sometimes my brain loses some details. But uh, one of the really iconic for me, uh, Cold Check, the series episodes uh, is The Devil's Platform, uh, which people might remember is the the senatorial candidate who's made a deal with the devil and turns into a dog. Somehow it made sense. But anyway, trust me, folks, this is what happens. Um, that came actually only a few weeks, maybe five or six weeks after the Watergate resignation. So this was right there. But even the the initial choice, and I think you're exactly right, the choice to, I think two really thing, innovative things about Kolchak, the choice to make it about the monster hunter right? To focus on the investigator. So we're not following the monster as we did comedically in Bewitched or the Munsters, the Adams family. We're not following the victims. We're not located in a particular place like uh, uh, in Dark Shadows. We're following this, this investigator. It's kind of, And the great thing about it, the second thing is what Kolchak in many ways is, is a police procedural, right? If you just take out the reporter part, if he's not at INS and he's not hunting for monsters, this is every, you know, Rockford, Mannix, McMillan and wife, pick any of your 1970s t- police procedurals. It's that same sort of step-by-step procedural outline. But people should also remember that in the early 1970s, maybe a little bit like for some folks these days, police was not an automatically good term. We had had, you know, the civil rights demonstrations, the violence, particularly in the South, Bull Connor unleashing dogs on peaceful protesters uh, in Selma. Um, we had had the police response, the very violent Chicago police response uh, to the Democratic National Convention protests in 1968. So the uniform was not automatically, oh, they're here to save us, right? There was something a little bit frightening. So 
Kolchak is like a number of series in the 1970s of sort of finding a different kind of hero. And the journalist, as, as you rightly point out, was a perfect example. We had not yet had uh, Watergate by the time you get the first Kolchak movie, but we had had the Pentagon Papers. And we also had a long history of both in reality and in popular culture of, you know, groundbreaking investigative journalists. So the journalist is a kind of natural for stories in either television or film. And so by taking the traditional gothic monster, putting it into the current age, focusing on an investigator and making him a reporter, it was just the perfect formula for that early 1970s audience. Yeah, and that antagonism between he and the police always played such a great role as well. Absolutely, and, and had to feel, you know, again, contemporary to people who were watching questionable practices by the police and then seeing that kind of antagonism aimed at our hero, Kolchak. So again, you know, that, that early 1970s anti-establishment was, you know, kind of part of the zeitgeist, right? The, the, the hippie movement, the civil rights movement, the, the early stages of the LGBTQ movement, but all pushing back and in all of those movements, women's liberation, et cetera, the police and the authorities were the enemy. And so here you had Kolchak, certainly not a hippie, right? No one looked at Kolchak and said, peace out, man, right? I mean, he was clearly a very establishment figure, but he could connect with that younger viewer in 1970 uh, because he was anti-establishment. Kolchak was always rubbing the police, the politicians, the, the, the wealthy, the business owners, like anybody in authority. You know, the minute Kolchak walked in, you could see their face drop because no one wanted to see Carl walk into the diamond auction or the hotel administrator's office or you know any of those sort of places. So, so how did you come to write this book about Kolchak? Now, I was not, I'm not quite old enough to have watched the series when it first came out. I was a little too young. I, I don't recall it. But I did find it when I was about eight or nine, which I think a lot of, of folks found it, on the CBS reruns. And I think actually this was probably the thing, if there's anything that pr helped to m imprint Kolchak on not only the culture, but a whole generation of horror fans and horror creators, people like Chris Carter and, and, and others who saw Kolchak, a real model of, of telling horror stories, I think probably the pure happenstance moment was CBS purchasing the rights to rerun uh, the Night Stalker TV series in 78, 79, 80, 81 in their CBS late night programming. Um, and so that's where I discovered it. And so it had always been in my head as an iconic horror narrative. But I think for me, I had always kept it as like, well, that was television. And so I think for my own kind of academic development, you know, spending most of my time looking in, in the history of film, it took a moment. And part of it was talking with folks at Wayne State who said, hey, what are you doing, etc. Part of it, honestly, was also COVID, because a lot of my work involves going to film archives, and it's hard to go to an archive when you can't get on a plane or leave your house. And so it was kind of in that moment of saying, wait a minute, that series wasn't just something I watched as a kid. It was a major moment in American culture at exactly this moment, right? Exactly that time in the early 1970s when horror is exploding. And, you know, it's certainly in the movies, you get massive success of like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby and Alien, but just in culture generally, like people, it's all, I, I was, I was running across that I think it's the year uh, that, 
uh, the Night Stalker came out, Alice Cooper had two hits, two two albums in the kind of top forty, right? I mean, so so you had shock rock and horror rock and all this sort of thing is happening, and in comes Kolchak, and I started saying, how did that fit into that broader moment in culture? Uh, and so the book kind of came from that. What were some of the challenges of writing this other than COVID? COVID was a big challenge. Um, I think the other big challenge for me was figuring out kind of how to position myself. And I do want to be very clear. Mark Dewidziak is both A, the undisputed king of knowledge of Kolchak and probably everything else about television. So I, I want to be clear to anybody listening saying, are you trying to get in Mark Dewidziak? No, no. Mark is the king. I bow to it. And in fact, he was actually very gracious when I was working on this book. I sent him some questions, really salt of the earth, most absolutely lovely person. Even in, now as I'm promoting it, he's often the first person to like things on social media or say, congratulations. So absolutely a prince. So I knew I couldn't do Mark's book because A, Mark had written it. It was definitive. He had done the interviews. He'd done the archive. He did all the stuff that I think I did not need to do. So for me, the question was, what's my angle? And that was where working with the folks at Wayne State was really, uh, Wayne State University Press, who's, who's the publisher, was very helpful. They had this series uh, that people should check out beyond just my book uh, called TV Milestones. Uh, they're very short and cheap. Yay, we like cheap. Uh, uh, monographs about television show series that people are kind of arguing, like, this matter. Like, this is a milestone. So, you know, all your classics, like I Love Lucy, the Honeymooners, uh, more contemporary things like Twin Peaks, The X-Files, Twilight Zone, like all those kind of films you'd say, if you had the pantheon of iconic TV series, these would be the series. And it occurred to me, that was my, so I felt like my job was to go in and say, hey, television world, television fan world, even if you might not have heard of this series, because again, it doesn't have quite the immediate name recognition as say I Love Lucy or The Honeymooners or MASH, I'd say even if you haven't heard of this series, it changed the course of television history. And that was, so that I felt like my job, so I guess part of the challenge was finding out what I'm trying to do. But once that made sense, that I could take what Mark had done and a lot of other great scholars and, and historians in sort of getting the history of Kolchak, I could borrow from them citing them, of course, you know, uh, I could borrow from them. I could climb up on their shoulders and have a little megaphone to say, hey, people, if you haven't heard of Kolchak, let me tell you why he matters. It's such a strange show, this whole idea of the two TV movies, and then the show comes out and the show doesn't succeed. It, it doesn't run the full 22 episodes. It gets canceled after what, 20 or 19? I can't remember. After, you know, it makes 20. And then there are a couple in the that, that scripts that never get made. And it was a rate. The other part is, and I, and I see a lot of uh, discussion on, you know, the various Kolchak social media groups. And there are a lot of reasons it got pulled. Darren McGavin was very unhappy. There were production problems. It had gone through some producers. There were changes at ABC, big, big changes at the top. Um, so clearly things were up, you know, and also ABC was running deeply third, getting killed by NBC and CBS. But it's also worth remembering, Kolchak, the series, never had good ratings. Never. In fact, I think it tied for 65th for its season with the Sonny Bono show. And this was not Sonny and Cher. This is post-divorce Sonny by himself show, which did not last very long. So it, it did not attract an audience. Um and I think there are, you know, I think there are some good reasons it didn't attract an audience. Uh, and indeed, one of the things I try to argue uh, for, or kind of make the point of in the book, I think what Kolchak did right influenced TV history, 
But I think also what Kolchak, the series, did wrong really influenced the history. So that people like Chris Carter, who really did use the X-Files to say, or use Kolchak to launch the X-Files, Twin Peaks, was Kolchak was used uh, to say, oh, this is like Kolchak. Certainly Eric Kripke's Supernatural, Kripke basically admits, I wanted to do Kolchak, and when I realized the idea I had was so close to Kolchak that it would get me in trouble, I changed them from being, uh, you know, reporters to brothers, and thus launched one of the longest running, uh, you know, horror television shows in history. So I think learning, I think a lot of those creators saw in Kolchak what worked, but also learned from its mistakes. Yeah, there's no Miss Emily character on Supernatural. No, no. But what Supernatural gets right, and I think, you know, to me, the the biggest failing of the show, and again, I, I say this lightly, as as a fan, this time I can honestly say I'm genuinely a fan. Sometimes I write about films I'm not a big fan of just because they're interesting, but Kolchak is my, I would break curfew when I was nine and sneak to the living room and put the TV on really low and lay in my little sleeping bag right by the, you know, back in the days when you didn't have, you know, all the stuff we have now and, and turn the channel really quietly. So no one would wake up and watch Kolchak and be terrified. So I loved this series, but the biggest failing is that it never became a proper series in the sense that there's no memory, right? There's no continuity. Carl keeps fighting monsters. He gets he he handles them, and then you know at the end of every episode, the photos were blurry, or the camera was confiscated, or all the evidence disappeared, or it was always suppressed. But there was never the buildup. So you know you look at the X Files, which is kind of the next generation of Kolchak. They learned from that mistake. They did have one-off episodes, but they had a bigger narrative. There were consequences to actions. We did have this broader conspiracy of why things keep getting suppressed, but that became part of the story. And so you could go and watch a single X-Files episode, but you would also see something that would make you want to come back the next week and the next week. And Kolchak just never developed that, never developed that through line of, oh my goodness, what's going to happen next? Which is ironic because the reboot of Kolchak tried to do that a little, but just didn't do it maybe enough. There was that whole, the mark and this and that and the other. And I remember right towards the end, because again, another canceled series, but right towards the end, there were, I think, two episodes that started to play into the mythology and they just, it just went away. Just could, I mean, the, the reboot is interesting. I think you're right. The reboot said, aha, we can fix the seriality. We'll make this all about this, you know, a little bit of borrowing from the fugitive. His wife has been murdered and he's the suspect and he's going to find out. And it's something to do with some supernatural conspiracy. But, you know, the flip side was they didn't learn from what Kolchak did well, which was the charm of Darren McGavin. I mean, he's just as irascible and grumpy old guy, but you just want to hear the next wisecrack that's going to come out of his mouth. And the reboot was charmless. Let's, let's just say it that way. And they also lost the humor. And I think one of the things that made the TV movies work so well and, you know, when the series worked, it was that balance between scary stuff, and there's some genuinely scary moments in the series and certainly in the TV movies, with that humor. You know, it's it's making fun of Updike or it's Miss Emily talking about her sex life or it's, you know, Tony and, and Carl having these big blowouts. Um, that ability to balance scary and funny, I mean, that's really the history of a lot of horror. And, and certainly, you know, I, I just uh, just watched Nope, the new Jordan Peele film. Uh, and I think that's one of the great things that Jordan Peele is really expert as a filmmaker is balancing, okay, this is scary and a little political and a little unsettling, 
But here's some funny bits to kind of kind of make that mix work. And when Kolchak worked well, it got that balance. When it didn't work well, then maybe it didn't manage. I do appreciate that the book is short, but I think it's a little too short. I wish that it went on for more because I enjoyed it so much. Thank you. Unfortunately, Wayne State has a really strict word limit. So uh, yeah, I I, uh, I felt the same way. I said I, I feel like I I you know I would have loved. I do think you know for people that love the the series, um, you know I would hope people will consider looking at my book. But I definitely think this book in com- combination with Mark's book, uh, The Nice Talker Companion, which as I understand it from, from Mark, is coming back. Uh, it, it's out of print right now, but they are coming back with an with a, a updated edition that's going to have a whole lot of additional information. So I definitely would say if you want more, Mark is the, the more guy. I think mine is the short book when you're when, when a friend of yours says, why do you like this stupid series? You hand them my book. If they buy my argument, then they go read Mark's book and they get this really rich, full, beautiful history. I'm so glad to hear that Mark's book is being reissued. It took so long to find that original Kolchak companion. Yeah, I don't want I don't even want to remember how much I paid to no. get it from some back alleyway or something, but it, but it was invaluable and it's wonderful. And Mark is an amazing reporter and TV historian. And again, just an absolutely lovely individual, uh, gracious and kind. Some people, you know, when they've written about something, they then want to lay a fence around it and say, mine, nobody can come near it. Uh, Mark is the, the exact opposite, just a, a scholar and a gentleman in every good sense of that word. And so, yes, I think I'm not sure exactly can Mark can come on and tell you exactly when the book is coming out, but I, I've heard him say that now. So I believe that's happening. And, and again, I think that is really the definitive. Look at me selling Mark's book. How good am I, I selling Mark's book? Um, but if you have a few pennies left over, you know, pick up my little uh, missive on the on the Night Stalker, and maybe together they're they're the perfect gift. I think. Where is the best place for people to keep up with you and all your projects? I would definitely encourage people to follow me on Twitter. That's where I put out most stuff. I am my Twitter handle is at Dark Projections, a combination of a book I wrote called Dark Directions and a book I wrote called Projected Fears. So Dark Projections. I would also say if people are interested in hearing my melodious voice, I can't imagine why you would be, uh, but I also host a podcast uh, produced uh, here in Syracuse at WAER and going out through National Public Radio. Uh, The podcast is called Pop Life, and we occasionally do horror episodes, uh, but we do a lot of general pop culture things. So uh, please feel free and and look up Pop Life at WAER and tune in and give us a listen. Professor Phillips, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Really an honor to be here. I love I love the podcast. Uh, really great to talk to you. Thank you, Mike. <laughs>